Welcome to Health Essentials, a Cleveland Clinic podcast. There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends, but who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and today we are talking to Dr. Stephen Nissen, Chairman of Cardiovascular Medicine here at Cleveland Clinic, talking about your heart, how it works, why it fails, and as always, please keep in mind this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. Thank you so much for coming in today, Dr. It's Nissen. great to be with you, and great to be with all of you. Great. Well, do you want to kind of take a few minutes to introduce yourself to our um, viewers? Just a little. Uh, as uh, you mentioned, I'm the chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine here at the Cleveland Clinic, or a very, very large heart center. Uh, my interests are in prevention of heart disease and in the development of new novel treatments, but also areas like diet, which, of mm. course, is, is very important in yes. preventing heart disease. Great. Well, heart disease is the number one cause of death in the United States and all around the world. So Cleveland Clinic did conduct a survey, um, and we find out that Americans are very confused about their heart. Uh, many of us are confused about the key symptoms. So I wanted to kind of talk about the results that we have. Um, first one is 87% of Americans wrongly believe heart attack and cardiac arrest are the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two and what they are and what the symptoms are for those two? Well, I was very surprised by the survey, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that... You know, here's a disease that's the number one killer of men and women, and people don't know very much about it. Right. So a heart attack is when there is a blockage due to a blood clot in an artery that supplies blood to the heart. And part of that heart muscle then begins to die. And that uh, will cause characteristic symptoms, chest pain, often in the center of the chest, often radiating to the left arm or to both arms or up to the jaw. And it's a, it's a medical emergency for sure because we have great treatments now for stopping a heart attack in its, in its tracks. Uh, we can get a patient, particularly if we can get them within about 90 minutes into a heart catheterization laboratory where we take pictures of those arteries and we can open up and put a stent in and we can literally stop the heart attack. Wow. You know, when I was a young physician, all you could do is watch and wait and hope for the best with a heart attack. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. So you have to know about these symptoms and you have to understand it's critical to get treatment right away. We have a phrase. We say, time is muscle. What that means is time is wasting heart muscle. You don't want to lose that heart muscle. It's the only one you've got. So tell me the difference between the cardiac arrest and a heart disease and what to do in both cases. So cardiac arrest is a very different problem. Mm -hmm. Cardiac arrest is usually an electrical disturbance of the heart. It may be actually caused by a heart attack, oh. but the heart either beats wildly or it doesn't beat at all. And this is a grave situation where death will occur within just a very few minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, we know that if we don't get the heart restarted within about four minutes, if we get it started within four minutes, the outcomes are pretty good. You know, people's brains recover, they do okay. Between four and eight minutes is kind of a gray zone. And then after eight, particularly after 12 minutes, uh, uh, usually the outcome's not so good. There's permanent brain injury. And mm -hmm. so the brain can't do without blood flow. Sure. And when the heart stops working, there's no flow to the brain and permanent injury occurs. 
So knowing what to do in a cardiac arrest is critical to saving lives. Sure. Can, can we factor in um, the symptoms of a stroke as well? Because yes. I think a lot of people are also confused. They think that the symptoms are very similar. We were surprised that people were not so clear. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, a stroke is not a blockage in the artery in the heart. It's a blockage in the artery that goes to the brain. And what happens is people will have either numbness or weakness. In, it can be in an arm or a leg. Usually it's one side of the body, right. sometimes with difficulty speaking. Uh, and again, it's changed how we treat this disorder. In the old days, you put a patient to bed, you gradually recovered over a period of days to weeks, and you kind of hope for the best. Yeah. Now with a stroke, we do the same thing we do for a heart attack. We give clot-busting drugs to break up that clot in the artery in the brain, uh, or in fact, sometimes uh, uh, the neurosurgeons or neurologists will go in, or radiologists, and they'll actually open up the artery. And it's been shown now that if you intervene promptly in the case of a stroke, people's recovery of function is much, much better. Mm. So if you have those symptoms, you obviously want to get treatment right away. The biggest problem we have is people try to wish away these symptoms, yeah. and it's dangerous. If you've got chest pain that you think may be a heart attack, you know, don't call your doctor. You know, don't call your friend. You know, don't drive yourself or have your family drive you to the hospital. Right. Call 911, get an ambulance crew there so that you can be treated promptly. Okay, and then with cardiac arrest, that's something if, let's say, we see someone in front of us pass out or just fall to the ground, chest compressions. That's right. Well, you know, there's a number of things you have to do. Obviously, you want to feel for a pulse because okay. some people who have passed out, that really not, the heart hasn't really stopped. Yeah. Okay. So you have to know to do the right thing. Sure. And so you check for a pulse. If there's no pulse and you're pretty sure that the heart's not working, then you start chest compressions. There's a big change in recent years. It's now recommended for bystander, you know, a CPR that you just do the chest compressions. You don't have to do the mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Mm -hmm. uh, the evidence is that people do about as well just with the chest compressions, and it takes away some of the concerns that people have about doing this. But there's one more fact. Many uh, offices, buildings, public places have these defibrillators, these AEDs. Mm -hmm. You can see those signs up everywhere. A lot of people will walk by them every day and not really no notice that they're, that they're there. Right. And so you ought to check around your workplace because you can save a life. If someone has a cardiac arrest, you can put on these paddles and it, the device is very smart. Yeah. It looks at the heart rhythm and it will only deliver a shock if in fact needed. it's the right thing to do, if it's right. needed. And uh, these smart automatic uh, external defibrillators, AEDs, look for where they are, know where there is one, if, if there's one at your workplace, uh -huh. and know how to use it. You can save somebody's life by promptly restarting the heart long before that ambulance crew has gotten there. Yeah. You've got them back. Great. And I think that's very important because the survey results also, also showed 46% of Americans don't know CPR and a whopping 85% of Americans aren't aware that CPR only requires chest compression. That's right. So <clears throat> knowledge is power here and knowledge is life-saving. Sure, sure. Now, I've actually been hearing a lot of our own uh, Cleveland Clinic commercials and it talks a lot about 
um, did you know if you're having a heart attack or suspecting that you're having a heart attack to actually chew on aspirin, not just take it orally? Why chew? Well, you want to get the aspirin into the bloodstream right away. Mm -hmm. and if you chew it up, it facilitates its absorption. If you think about it, if you swallow a whole aspirin, that tablet's got to dissolve in the stomach, and that takes time. Right. You can get aspirin into the bloodstream more quickly. Now, why aspirin? Well, aspirin has an anticoagulant, anti-clotting effect. And so it breaks up something known as platelets, and it can actually, in a few per, small percentage of patients, just a small percent, can actually cause the artery to reopen. And in those in whom it doesn't reopen, having it on board when you actually get to the hospital can also facilitate the other procedures that we do to open yeah. up the artery. So get an aspirin in. So 325 milligram full-size aspirin, not a baby aspirin, and not a coated aspirin, because the coated aspirin takes too long to absorb. You I want see. to get it in right away, one regular aspirin, chew it up. And Three, 325 and, milligrams yeah, and chew it up. Chew it up and swallow it. And then swallow it, perfect. <clears throat> now, can we talk about some of the biggest heart attack risk factors? Yeah, well, certainly the most important one is age. You know, you don't see many heart attacks in 18 year olds. Yeah. Um, so as you get into middle age years, you know, your risk goes up. Um, men, at least uh, at the younger ages in the 40s and 50s, have a higher rate of, of heart attacks than women do. So gender is certainly an issue. Smoking is an enormous risk sure. factor. Smoking about doubles your risk of a heart attack at a given age. It's really remarkable. You know, a lot of people know about smoking and lung cancer, but a lot of people don't necessarily know that smoking is a huge risk factor for heart disease. Yes. High cholesterol, high levels of the bad cholesterol known as LDL cholesterol, that's another really, really important risk factor. High blood pressure. Uh, you know, in, in, Lots of high blood pressure in our society now. We have new guidelines that just came out a few months back mm -hmm. that recommend treating blood pressure to lower target levels than in the past. So if you have high blood pressure, get on medication, see your doctor regularly, get it treated. And then the other really big one is diabetes. You know, diabetes is increasing with great uh, uh, alarming uh, uh, speed sure. in America. And so diabetics have a very substantial increase in risk. If you're diabetic, it means you probably ought to, want, ought to be getting care to try to protect your heart because it's a huge risk factor for heart disease. So those are the really, really big ones that we, we worry about. So what about the ones that we don't actually think about a lot? I've read somewhere about like, um, I'm gonna list a few here, uh, intense emotions, sudden excursion, extreme cold, heavy meals. Yeah. Does, that, does that factor? You know, what what we're talking about here, you know, this is, this is mythology, right? That you go out and shovel snow and have a heart attack, okay? Mm -hmm. But in general, exercise is very safe. Even stuff, you know, if you have very severe heart disease, you probably aren't going to be wanting to be out shoveling snow. But for most people, you know, it's good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got my wife to do it, which is good, you know, but I sometimes do it myself. <laughs> and, uh, but in all seriousness, um, you know, heavy exertion is not, it's not something you worry about. You know, getting exercise is actually generally a good thing. Yes, intense emotions can put a little bit of stress on the heart, but it's not, it's not right up there at the forefront of our sure. thinking. If you've controlled your cholesterol, diabetes, uh, blood pressure, if you don't smoke, if you exercise regularly, and if you avoid obesity, 
you're not going to have to worry so much about whether you're under a bit of stress. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Great. Well, um, can we talk about the ideal diet for heart health? Yeah, it's very controversial. And so, what we recommend is what you know. Jokingly, we reckon that the no fad diet. Okay? Okay. okay, there are a lot of fad diets out there. Most of them have almost no scientific evidence, and it's almost unbelievable how many there are. We got people out there saying, "Don't eat any fat." We have people out there saying, "Don't eat any carbs." Right. And those extreme diets are not heart healthy. There is one diet that has very good scientific evidence. It's known as the Mediterranean diet. It's the diet that people that live around the Mediterranean Sea eat in Italy and in Greece and other places. It's very rich in olive oil, mm -hmm. uh, nuts, lots of fruits and vegetables. There is some meat and fish, but probably more fish. So it's not heavy into the, the kind of steak and potatoes kind of diet that Americans eat. Sure. Uh, but it is, you know, it's very healthy things. It's wonderfully tasty. Yeah. You don't have to eat cardboard boxes for dinner in order to have a healthy diet. You can eat a really, really tasty diet. You just got to eat the right things. You can go out and read about the Mediterranean diet, but it's got great evidence. 7,000 patients study done in Spain showed about a one-third reduction in the risk of developing heart disease in wow. people that, and this was a very well-done study, sure. people that eat the Mediterranean diet. All the other fad diets, you know, they don't have that kind of evidence. So I know we talked a little bit about, uh, um, sorry, olive oil. Um, can we talk a little bit about coconut oil? Yeah. And um, I know I've heard a lot of different opinions. Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot, yeah, there's, you know, again, there are all these cults out there in mythologies. You know, people tell you coconut oil is somehow, you know, very healthy. There are other people who tell you coconut oil is terrible. We just don't have any, we have very little evidence. Okay. There's quite a debate going on now because coconut oil is something known as a saturated fat. It's a type of fat that's in butter and other things. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely clear that all of the older conventional wisdom that said that saturated fats are bad sure. is correct. We do know one kind of fat that is bad, and it's known as trans fat. Yes. And these are fats that are made by bubbling hydrogen gas through vegetable oil. Mm -hmm. You sometimes see them on product labels as hydrogenated vegetable oil. Mm -hmm. And there's pretty strong evidence that those trans fats increase the risk of heart disease. And in fact, in some places, they've actually been banned. Wow. So uh, look for that. Look for those, those key trans fats, hydrogenated labels, vegetable yeah. oil on labels in foods. If you see that, you probably want to stay, stay away. away from it. Okay, well, I'm going to go to some live questions. I have Lisa. I'm more confused about how to eat. So many different thoughts to this. Knowing inflammation is the main cause of problems. I have had two heart attacks. ER, CABG, Widowmaker, failed heart surgery, which, which caused CHF, uh, just need an idea on a diet. And yeah. kind of just talk Yeah, about and I'll reemphasize the Mediterranean diet. And, you know, um, you know, the, you know, yes, inflammation is important, but we don't have any evidence that there's a particular diet that reduces inflammation. Maybe the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, get a book on the Mediterranean diet. It's wonderfully tasty. Yeah. It's very evidence-based. It's also important how much you eat. Course, Obesity control. is a major driver mm -hmm. and you can go online and you can find a calculator that calculates your body mass index. You want your body mass index to be under 25. When you're under 25, you're at a healthy body weight. 
You get between 25 and 30, you're overweight. You get above 30, you're obese. Okay. And so it's not just about what you eat, it's also how much you eat, it's portion size. And the other issue that relates to all this, of course, is lack of exercise. Mm -hmm. If you eat a lot of food, you don't exercise, you gain weight, that does put the heart under a lot of stress, changes the metabolism, and is a major driver of, of heart disease that we're really struggling with in America. Speaking of exercise, I have a question from Michael. Is it true that swimming is the king exercise for heart health? Yeah. There's nothing special about swimming. Okay. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, you know, walking is good, cycling is good, any aerobic exercise is great. Uh, I'll tell you something Michael may be a little surprised by. There's a little bit of evidence that swimming is less effective at weight loss than other types of exercise. Really? And there's a reason. Yeah. Uh, when you're in water, you're usually in cold water, mm -hmm. and the body interprets the cold as being a suggestion that needs more insulation, needs more fat. And so there's a bunch of things that happen. And so people's appetite may actually get increased a little bit more by swimming than it will be for other activities. So, you know, I personally advise patients, walking is great, you don't have to be a runner. Yeah. Cycling is great, particularly if you have arthritis or joint disease, because it doesn't put the, the, you know, the, you know, the joints through so Depression. much stress. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big plus. But frankly, any aerobic exercise you do is better than none. <laughs> We put a little less priority on strength training because it does not appear to be as effective at prevention. It's not bad for you, mm -hmm. but you want to at least mix it up with, with plenty of aerobic exercise. Great. Um, let's see, Mary uh, asks, can stomach problems mimic heart conditions? Yes, they can. can stomach problems can de indeed. And so this is why heart disease is hard to diagnose. Yeah. If you've got reflux of acid from the stomach into the esophagus, you get this kind of burning sensation in the chest, and it's pretty hard for a patient, and sometimes it's very hard for a physician, sure. to tell the difference between a GI problem and a heart problem. Okay. That's why you want to talk to your doctor, describe your symptoms very carefully. Clearly, symptoms that occur when you eat spicy foods, well, it's probably more than likely that it's GI, but that yeah. isn't always. And so we really struggle sometimes with interpreting the symptoms that patients have. And, and the more you can tell your, your physician about your symptoms, the better job they can do. And you may need some diagnostic tests to figure it out. So there are no clear signs or factors between the two besides like... Well, there are. Before? I mean, you know, the, the, the pain that people have in the chest that's, that's heart related is often described... In fact, people will actually take their hand and they'll go like this. They'll make a fist like they're squeezing. Mm -hmm. And this so-called squeezing pain in the chest. You know, doctors, when, you, when I have a patient comes in my office and says, you know, whenever I exercise, I get this pain. And they do this with mm -hmm. their hand. You know, you think that's very likely to be heart disease. Yeah. If they say, when I eat spicy meals, I kind of regurgitate a little bit and get, I mean, you know, we can figure it out you know, a lot of the time sure. from the description of the symptoms particularly if the pain goes down the arm, or, and also particularly if it goes up to the jaw. Chest pain going up to the jaw tends mm -hmm. to be much more related to the heart. So these are some of the clues, but you know, it really takes a professional to interpret those, and you wanna make sure you get good professional advice. Sure, great. Uh, Brenda is asking, is it bad to eat eggs? Well, I guess I will talk about yolk in, yeah, in particular. Okay. So 
Uh, you know, the, the U.S. dietary guidelines, which I'm not necessarily a particularly big fan of, mm -hmm. fortunately got it right finally after 25 <laughs> years. And it basically, eggs are no longer on the, the bad boy list. Yeah. You know, uh, let me tell you why. Of the cholesterol in your blood, only about a 10 to 15 percent of it comes from cholesterol that you eat. Mm. 85 to 90 percent of the cholesterol in your body you're making in your liver from nutrients. Mm -hmm. And so if you just took every speck of cholesterol out of the diet, you only can lower cholesterol a little bit. And so eating eggs, I mean, I wouldn't be on egg eating every every day, mm -hmm. but if you want to eat, you know, eggs a couple times a week, you know, if you want to have an omelet, you know, you want to have a boiled egg, it's pretty healthy. It's low calorie, it's mm -hmm. fundamentally healthy. I wouldn't worry too much about eating eggs. Can you talk a little bit about the cholesterol, the LDL, just the factors between yeah. the good and the bad? Yeah. Well, you know, again, this complicated, uh, you know, but not all that complicated for people to understand. Mm -hmm. LDL cholesterol is the form of cholesterol that gets into the plaques in the arteries that cause coronary heart disease. Mm -hmm. And so the lower your LDL cholesterol, the better. You know, we used to say uh, you can't be too rich or too thin. We now say you can't be too rich, too thin, or have too low in LDL cholesterol. Okay. We've recently done studies, some of which we did here, where we got people's LDL, the bad cholesterol, down to as low as 30. Mm. And they had less progression of their heart disease. And in a separate study uh, done out of Boston, they had less uh, heart attack and stroke. Mm. So clearly having a low LDL is good. HDL is the so-called good cholesterol. And it turns out that the higher the level of the HDL, the lower the risk of heart disease. Mm. Now what brings up HDL? Well, we tried to do it with drugs and it didn't work. Yeah. Exercise, you know, a little bit of alcohol, turns out one, one and a half kind of ounces of liquor a day, actually raises HDL a little bit. We don't take up drinking to raise your HDL, but you know, because it has other risks involved, but a little bit of alcohol, but primarily exercise and weight loss. People that are obese have, have higher body mass index and lower HDL. If they then get their body mass index down to normal, down below 25, their HDL goes up. Can you increase your HDL by eating good fats? You know, you, it's not entirely clear that okay. you can make a big difference. Okay. You know, um, there are small differences that occur. You know, the fats we're, we feel most comfortable with are known as monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats. And that's exactly what's in olive oil. Mm. They're also in things like canola oil and other, you know, very healthy fats. But the reality is the best evidence is for olive oil. People in the Mediterranean figured it out a long time ago. You know, yeah. they, they, they planted those olive trees and yeah. they've been reaping the harvest ever since. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Um, butter, beef, and bacon. I know we have a Health Essentials post that uh, you contributed to, so I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to talk a little bit about uh, those kind of foods. First of all, it's, it's very controversial. Yes. Okay. Um, we certainly don't recommend that people go out of their way mm -hmm. to eat, you know, butter and beef and these other things. Um, it is unclear, based upon recent evidence, that they're as bad as we might have once thought that they were. Mm -hmm. 
I personally, you know, first of all, there are plenty of people that are healthy vegetarians. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure. telling you that's not a good thing to do. But I'm also not telling you that you, you, you know, you need to go to confession because you had a, you know, you had a, a, a piece of lean beef last yeah. night. And so what I do, I can tell you what I do personally. I try to eat more fish. Okay. I eat a little bit of chicken. I occasionally will have beef, usually lean cuts of beef. And I, I can't tell you we have ironclad evidence that it's a bad thing to do. Okay. If you can increase your fish intake, great. Get your protein from fish when possible. Tofu is another great source for, for protein. But you don't have to be a vegetarian. I'm not, vegetarians are healthy. Yeah. It's a good thing to do. Sure, sure. But it isn't the only way to go. Okay, great. Uh, Teresa, uh, can you talk about vitamin K foods and taking blood thinners? I've read that you should try to keep the intake of vitamin K foods to consistent level. Fact or fiction or any concerns? Well, uh, that's a great question. Okay, so it turns out the traditional drug that we used as a blood thinner is known as warfarin or by the brand name Coumadin. Okay. And Coumadin antagonizes the effect of vitamin K, which is why it's a blood thinner. And so if you vary your intake of vitamin K containing foods, you can have wild swings in the degree to which your blood thinner is actually working. Mm. And so green leafy vegetables and certain other kinds of foods are very rich in vitamin K. And so if you're on a blood thinner warfarin or Coumadin, mm -hmm. you, have, you want to have a steady intake of vitamin K containing foods so you don't have these wild swings. But where there's a new contemporary solution to this problem that's now becoming very, very popular, okay. there are new drugs known as direct-acting oral coagulants or novel oral anticoagulants. They're newer drugs, they're expensive, but they don't antagonize vitamin K, uh. and they don't even require monitoring. You don't have to actually have your blood checked for the anticoagulant level. And increasing numbers of patients are now getting these NOACs or DOACs. Uh, that are these very uh, fancy new drugs. I wish they were less expensive. Yeah. You know, yeah. But, but the reality is, is they're, they're a lot easier to take. Perfect. Great. Uh, let's see. And <clears throat> I have uh, Nancy. I recently moved to Salt Lake City. Uh, my blood pressure uh, has went crazy, 200 over 100. I've tried a couple of medications. Do you think this could uh, be an altitude related? Uh, when visiting out of state, her blood pressure does go down. Well, it's an interesting uh, idea. Uh, you know, I'm unaware of medical literature that says that living in a place like Salt Lake City yeah. uh, is associated with higher blood pressure. Uh, in fact, some very healthy populations live up in the Andes and in the Himalayas. You know, you think about the Sherpas. Of course, those people are exercising all yeah, day long right. and, and so on. And so I, I think it is unlikely that the problem is directly related to altitude. But I will also tell her that it is really important that you get your blood pressure down. Okay. You don't want to be up at 200 millimeters of mercury for the top number, the systolic blood pressure. You know, those are kind of dangerous levels. Get in with a good physician that will stay with you, work on this. We recommend to people, you can go out and for less than $100, you can get an electronic blood pressure cuff at the local pharmacy. Mm -hmm. They're pretty accurate. Uh, you can go to a place like Consumer Reports and you can get ratings on them. They've, they've been well tested. And then you keep a chart. And I can't tell you how great it is when a patient comes in and hands me a chart and says, 
here, I've been taking my blood pressure twice a day. Here's my blood pressure for the last two weeks. And I can see the pattern and I can make adjustments to their medication. This is a general principle that we really think is important. Why this kind of a chat is important. Take charge of your own health. Yes. Don't be passive. You know, be proactive. You know, get that blood pressure cuff. Measure your blood pressure. Show it to your physician. That will help them to help you. Great, great. Well, we only have two minutes left, and you've given us some great information, but is there anything you want to kind of tell our viewers that maybe we have not touched on yet? You know, it's really that last message. Um, you want to know your risk factors. You want to know what, if you don't know what your blood pressure is, you may be at risk. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what your cholesterol is, and I'm not talking about total cholesterol, I'm talking about the LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, mm -hmm. you may be at risk. If you smoke, you ought to be terrified. I mean, honestly, in today's day and age, we know so much about this. We, you know, it's going to take seven or eight years off your life. Don't do it. If you're overweight, find a way to get on a diet and exercise program. If, you, if you're a couch potato, get up off the couch. Get out and start to walk or bike or, you know, or swim sure. or whatever it is that you like to do. And that's the other thing about exercise. They're, they're all good. So pick something you like to do. I happen to like to walk. And I also like to cycle. I cycle in the summer, yeah. not so much in Cleveland in the winter. No. <laughs> but uh, but I like to cycle in the summer. And, you know, so be, be your own advocate. Uh, don't rely on your physician to be your conscience. You should be the one to take charge. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for pleasure coming for in today. Pleasure for me, too. And for more health tips and information, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at Cleveland Clinic, one word. Thank you. We'll see you again soon. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.